This is episode 21 with Dr. Harris. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. My guest today, she's a chiropractic clinical neurologist with over two decades of experience. She has a private practice in Woodenville, Washington, and she is the only active woman doctor of her kind in the state. Dr. Mary's mission is to help others live to their fullest by helping their bodies function better. In this episode, we will talk about ADHD, anxiety, and depression, and how to overcome these disorders without drugs. Dr. Mary, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate you making time for this. Alonso, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was very interested uh, in in meeting with you. And then just to give everybody a brief of how we met, I, I was uh, I was in a, going to a herbal store, um, herbal wellness, because <laughs> those can get confused with the marijuana stores. These days. <laughs> uh, to, you know, I was just, I, I, de- I deal with anxiety and I was looking for something. And then uh, I think you heard me mentioned anxiety and you were so kind to just kind of say hey i i just have something to share with you and i thought you were so interesting and so helpful that i ended up uh, briefly meeting you there and now interviewing you <laughs> that was a pleasure yeah i was surprised i said can i can i listen in to what he's what she's going to tell you about adhd and anxiety yeah so really quick uh why don't we get started just really quick by sharing how do you, how do you end up how do you ended up uh doing what you do in as a chiropractic clinical neurologist and maybe tell me a little bit about what makes that a uh, field unique. Well, chiropractic neurology is unique because there's an extra field of study besides the classic chiropractic. Mm-hmm. The reason I got involved in this was because I had my own functional neurological crisis in about 2006 to 2009. I started to, to develop severe anxiety and severe insomnia. And as I already had my degree in functional neurology, but there are so few doctors around here that know how to examine the brain and fix what they find in a functional way, that this was really important to me. Now, um, because I didn't have any pathology, in other words, if I went to a regular medical doctor neurologist, they would take some images and say, oh, there's nothing wrong with your MRI, there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with your blood work, but a lot of people are in crisis even when they don't have any positive findings on these images. So I was in crisis and I was in search of someone to help me. And I flew to, I flew all over the place. I flew to Philadelphia. I went to the Bay Area. I went to Portland to seek treatment. And I went to... Where did you fly out of state for to seek treatment? Where or when? No, why? You couldn't find anything that worked for you in the area? I couldn't find anybody that would help me in the area or that could... There are a lot of people that are helping me. <laughs> Don't yeah. let me let me let me go back yeah. on that. There are a lot of people that are helping me. I mean, I went to naturopaths and I went uh-huh. to different sorts of therapists, and but I knew that there was something wrong with the connections in my brain. I knew that my brain was misfiring mm-hmm. as a functional neurologist. My brain isn't working. My brain isn't working. I don't. What on earth is wrong with me? And I finally flew to Chicago to see a man named Dr. Robert Humphreys, mm-hmm. and he has a diplomate in neurology degree as well as I do. He teaches at a college called National. Um, National University outside of Chicago. And I actually got off the airplane 
And I had spoken to, I've never met this man. This was before I ever had a cell phone. And I was walking towards him in the airport. I'd never met him before. And I walked up to him and I said, I have no hope and I have no vision. My life is being destroyed. I don't know what's wrong with my brain. And he looked at me and he said, hope and vision live in the right cortex. And you don't have a right cortex. Ha! Just by the way he was watching me walk towards him, by the weakness he saw in my right face, by the way my shoulders were rotating in on the right side more as I was approaching him, this just blew my mind because I had been in search of people for two years and nobody knew what to do. Nobody was wrong. He was so confident. So I was with him for a week. I went to all of his classes for that week. I had uh, lunch and dinner with him every day. And he treated me multiple times a day. And after a week of treatment in his clinic, I felt good for a few minutes. And Alonzo, you have to understand, I think at that point, I would cried every day for two years before that. It's a really tough thing to escape from. Mm-hmm. Anxiety, sadness is a really tough thing to get. So you have both the anxiety and depression. I was not clinically depressed because technically there were things that would bring me the thought yeah. of joy. Yeah. But yeah, I was having a really difficult time, mm -hmm. especially with anxiety. Okay. And then I'm going to guess that that doctor that ended up helping you, that's what you do now. That is what I do now. <laughs> Three months later, I flew back to see him and I said, Dr. Humphreys, I've done everything you told me to do. Now you have to teach me what you're doing because people need this and they don't know where to go. What did the treatment that you received from this doctor consists of? That's a good question because... And I know there is probably many things to cover, but kind of from a high level. Treating the brain is not like looking at a cookbook. Mm -hmm. But for me, in my treatment, because I have severe scoliosis and other things that were complicating the treatment, I was receiving specific adjustments, but also more gentle stimulation to different parts of the brain, different sorts of light therapy in different positions of my eye, different sorts of color light in different positions in my oh, eye, wow. vibration therapy on the left side of my body. It was really at the end of the week when Dr. Humphrey said, now before you leave, I want you to put your left foot on this vibration plate. And I thought he was crazy. I mean, these, yeah. oh, this was like, what, what are you doing? But this man knows neurology. He's much smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> he knows he knows neurology because he teaches it and he lives it and he owns it. And I put my left foot on that vib vibration plate and after about 30 seconds, I started laughing. It seems like an insignificant thing, but for someone who cried every day for two years before that, feeling like you couldn't control the laughing and it was, I was like, what is this? And you know, later on, I realized if you could inhibit the amygdala, if you could... We'll talk about that maybe mm -hmm. later, but there are parts of the brain that spit out all those negative things. Mm -hmm. There's a part of your brain called the amygdala, and it's spitting out these emotions, depression, mm -hmm. sadness, anxiety, fear, anger, mm -hmm. rage, all get spit out from these lower parts in your brain. And it's normal to have those things. Those things protect. Fear is important, right? Mm -hmm. If you're walking down a street in New York City, and you're about to get jumped by someone. I hope you should have some fear to be able to run away. Mm -hmm. And anxiety I'm glad my children have some anxiety when they have the test the next day. It motivates them to study harder. Mm. But these things should be shut off at will. It's normal to have some depression and anxiety. But your cortex should be healthy enough to be able to shut those emotions off when you need them to shut off. Mm -hmm. And this is the part of my brain that wasn't working well enough to shut these areas off. Well, what's the journey like for somebody who is looking to overcome 
any of these emotions to the point where they can shut them off at will. There's a concept in neurology called neuroplasticity. And this means that the brain is changeable. Mm -hmm. So in neurology, we don't ever use the word permanent. Like when, when are you going to get a permanent change? I don't like you to use that word because you continually have to stimulate the neurons to keep them healthy and keep them alive. Mm -hmm. However, there is a point where I think people can reach stability. And I think it's between three and six months. There's some research online that talks about how you can make neuroplastic change in the brain if you do things every day for three months at least. There's a concept in neuron theory. So your neurons, we have all the neurons we're ever going to have. We have all the nerve cells in our body we're ever going to have, except with very small exception in maybe the hippocampus. But when you're born, you have all these neurons. And when the baby first comes out, these neurons start to die really quickly. We lose over 10,000 neurons alone in just the corpus callosum every second when a baby is born. So the brain that we end up with is like a sculpture. It's like It's like Michelangelo carving out of a giant block of marble. And he starts with this giant block of marble, but he ends up with this beautiful thing from taking the stone away. And our brain is the same thing. It's like an architecture of removal of the neurons. And so what we're left with is a brain that looks very similar to yours in about 50% of my brain looks just like yours. And about 50% of my brain looks really different based on my development and things that I've learned. So... If Alonzo, you go down the street and your mom says, you know what, you're going to take piano lessons and you're going to do the C scale every mm -hmm. day for 20 minutes. After about three weeks, you can do that scale without thinking about it. Your fingers move and mm -hmm. they do it. We know that there are pathways that are made there in your brain then that weren't there three weeks before that. Mm -hmm. But what is actually happening in the neuron? What's actually happening in the nerve cell is that a nerve cell is making proteins mm -hmm. And then you do that, you practice that piano again. And then the nerve cell makes longer proteins. And then you practice the piano again. And that nerve cell makes longer and longer proteins. Each of these proteins has a half-life in the cell. Mm -hmm. And when you first make those proteins, you don't have any. When you're first stimulated to learn something, anything new, whether it be inhibiting your anxiety or ADHD or learning to play the piano, those first molecules of proteins that are made in the cell fade away very quickly. They're called half-lives. Mm -hmm. The half-lives of that, of that protein are very, very fast. Boom. They're created, and 60 seconds later, they're gone. Mm -hmm. But if you keep stimulating that pathway, mm -hmm. those proteins get longer and longer and longer. And when you have really long-chain proteins in your neurons, they have a negative charge. It's fat neuron theory is very fascinating, but the cell membrane becomes very stable. The cell can actually get fatter. Mm -hmm. And when the cell gets healthy and fatter, it sprouts connections at the end and can literally make connections with other neurons. And that's what we can do. If you're alive and you're breathing, that's the magic of the mm -hmm. brain. Creating those neuroplastic change to become more and more stable so you could control yourself. <laughs> Inhibit emotions, control yourself function well all mm -hmm. your your thoughts are pathways your health of your organs your vital functions those are all pathways to be able to inhibit your stress centers those are all pathways mm -hmm. now moving on to to touch on each of the things um that i share with my listeners we're going to cover today which is the hdhd anxiety and stress 
depression st starting with ADHD. Uh, I know you deal with a lot of uh, patients that come to you uh, sharing that they have been diagnosed or that they're experiencing strong ADHD symptoms. How do you approach, what's your approach to to helping those people who, who have ADHD? Okay, so most frequently it's a child. The parent will bring in the child and... Um, most frequently, the child is having trouble in school. So ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think most people already know what that is. Attention Deficit, inability to stay focused on a task. Uh -huh. Hyperactive Disorder. We know what hyperactivity is like. Too much those, energy. Especially those boys that can't sit still in the classroom, yeah. you know, driving, yeah. the, driving the parents and the, and the teachers crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so inability to inhibit things. Um, so a parent will come in and say, my child's having problems in school. Yep. They have problems with being task-focused. They have problems with sequencing. You know, I say, honey, go inside and take your coat off and wash your hands. By the time they take their coat off, they forget their parents said to wash their hands. You know, they're looking at a problem and every little thing that they hear in the house, the sound of the refrigerator bothers them, too much light bothers them, too much sound bothers them. It's really a problem with the brain not being able to shut things off. Hmm. So, have you heard people like say... Like shut distractions off, right? Because you don't yes. want to shut it completely off, otherwise you wouldn't do even the tasks that you were assigned. Exactly. Exactly. So, focus. In ability to focus is a really great brain brain function. Interesting how you brought this up. We refer to... I use the word focus a lot, but the way that you brought up as the ability of focusing depends on your ability to shutting distractions off. That's that. Yeah, it's Alonso, another that's, angle. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what happens in the brain is, have you heard people say, we only use 10% of our brain? Have you heard that saying? Uh, I think I did in a movie that talks about how dolphins are way better. <laughs> well, this is... This. <laughs> dolphins might be better at some things, definitely. But um, regarding... Okay, regarding the brain and being able to shut things off, 90% of the output of the brain is... To shut things off. So when my little boy came home a few years ago and said, hey, they taught us in school that 90% of the brain doesn't do anything. We don't use 90% of our brain. That is total hogwash. You hear somebody say that, you say, no, 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 no. Because if we don't use every single neuron in our brain, I would say at least about once a week, that neuron starts to fade away. So those proteins that are in the neuron that we build up, we need to maintain those. We need to keep stimulating the brain in certain ways to keep it active. Because if you don't keep stimulating your brain, those proteins go away, they fade away, they get smaller and smaller, and you risk cell death. And we're killing, neurons die all the time. You have a couple of drinks, alcoholic drinks, we're, we're killing some neurons, okay? <clears throat> I had a question about that, because you're talking about stimulating the brain. And I, as of today, in my never-ending journey of becoming better at managing my own inability to focus. Um, I feel a lot had to do with being overstimulated. So it, it would be interesting to see what you think about that because in my case, I feel like it, it, was, it was more overstimulation than not being stimulated enough. That's not really it. Mm -hmm. It's appropriate stimulation at certain stages of development that are really important. There are so many things that I'd love oh. to I'd, I'd love to talk about here. That's but a highlight. Proper stimulation. Proper stimulation at normal times of development. So, have you ever heard of the concept of primitive reflexes? Uh, no. 
Okay, I'd love to talk about this for a couple of minutes. Okay. Primitive reflexes are reflexes that babies and infants have in utero and after the baby comes out. So for the last four months inside the womb, a baby has these motor responses that are called primitive reflexes. And after the baby's born, it's the primary way a baby moves is through these primitive reflexes. And the purpose of them is to keep the baby alive. It's for survival mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you, you touch a baby's hand, mm -hmm. the hand is supposed to grasp. It's called a grasp reflex. Mm -hmm. But that's not normal in a six-year-old. If you swipe the side of a baby's face, that baby is supposed to turn their face towards the stimulus. Mm -hmm. But that's not normal in a four-year-old or a six-year-old. Well, that's how they know how to uh, breastfeed. Since the moment they, they, yeah. Exactly, exactly. There are other primitive reflexes that are a little bit more complicated. But these primitive reflexes are important for survival when you're an infant. Mm -hmm. But as the brain develops normally, those primitive reflexes are supposed to be shut down and you're supposed to develop into getting good postural reflexes. Now, what I've noticed in my practice, and what Dr. Robert Melillo, who's written several books about this, and he started the franchise, the Brain Balance Achievement Centers, Dr. Melillo and other colleagues of mine have all noticed that every child with ADHD or autism, they all have a right cortical deficit. And almost all of them have persistent primitive reflexes when we examine them. So when you come to an office of someone who's a chiropractic neurologist, hopefully they will check all the primitive reflexes in a child. And after the age of four, all of them are supposed to be gone. But guess what? 40% of adults in this country have a persistent primitive reflex that's not supposed to be there. So fortunately, there are specific exercises to do to get rid of these specific primitive reflexes, because this is really the foundation for brain development. And are these reflexes the, the cause of or an influencer of ADHD? Yes, mm -hmm. they are an influencer of ADHD and not having enough good cortical development. Mm -hmm. So these are milestones that your brain patterns are built upon and that your brain pathways are built upon. You have to go through those milestones. And oftentimes when I'm examining someone and they have, say, a positive asymmetric tonic neck reflex, which isn't normal, the mother, y'all ask... Did they crawl normally and walk at the proper time? And sometimes the parents say, well, yeah, they crawled at the right time in about six months, but they had that one-arm crawl. I call it the wounded soldier crawl. You know, mm -hmm. you're crawling inside and they're dragging. Well, my middle child had the wounded, the wounded soldier crawl. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I didn't know anything about it, but I knew it was not normal. He should be crawling equally. The left mm -hmm. and right arm should be moving equally. The right arm should be moving when the left leg is moving. This is normal brain patterning. And a lot of children don't have something went wrong in the developmental stages and there are correlates to what went wrong you know um maternal stress is one thing when the baby's in utero was there a lot of maternal stress was there metabolic stress was there physical stress was there emotional stress there are a lot more boys than girls that have these these conditions mm -hmm. why is that you know because girls have an extra part in their brain that can mask the symptoms, the signs and symptoms of these things. Now, to get more tactical here, you mentioned exercises that we can do to get rid of these reflexes. Could you give us some very specific tactical examples of what those exercises look like? I can, yes. Um, 
One very common positive primitive reflex that I see in the office with adults and children with autism or ADHD is called the asymmetric tonic neck reflex. Mm -hmm. So in a normal person, when you move your head one way, the arm is supposed to go one way and the leg is supposed to go the other way. Now, in a person with this positive reflex, you will see that when they move their head, their arms move in a weird sort of pattern. So the... There are a few things that someone could do to get rid of this particular reflex. And one thing is called the lizard exercise. So I have the child lie on the floor and I'll have them move their head to the right and put their arm all the way up on the right and put their right leg all the way up so that their knee is almost towards their face. And then I have them put the head to neutral, the arm back down and the leg back down. And then I have them look to the left and their left arm would go all the way up their left leg would go all the, wall, all the way up. And that's called the lizard exercise because in an adult, when you move your right arm forward, your left leg's supposed to go forward. That's how we learn. That's crawling. Mm -hmm. The cross-crawl mechanism is so important for, for brain development. And some children miss out on that. They either don't crawl long enough or there's something wrong in the development. Do these exercises work the same both for children and adults? Yes, they do. Okay. Is your kind of... A doctor specialty, the only type of doctors, if anybody is listening to this and they're not local, that can help somebody identify which part of their cortex and everything that you just mentioned is having a deficit or misalignment? That's a great question. And uh, local psychologists do check, hopefully, they should check primitive reflex and say, oh, there's a deficit in his development because this primitive reflex is present. So um, functional neurologists are doing that, I know, and psychologists are doing that as well. Most of the research on primitive reflexes in the in the literature mm -hmm. is done by psychologists. Got it. How does the treatment for anxiety stress differs, if it does, from somebody who had ADHD? That's an excellent question. Sometimes people could have the same brain deficit and have completely different manifestations of it. Mm -hmm. For example, I could have a right cortical deficit and have extreme anxiety, where someone else could have a right cortical deficit and not be able to walk well. Some could have a right cortical deficit and have really high blood pressure. So there can be definitely commonalities with that. But one thing that is definitely the same, I would say, is that the top of the brain is unable to control the lower parts of the brain. It's unable to do its inhibitory work. So we said earlier that 90% of the output of the brain is to shut things off. One of the things it's supposed to shut off is trivial stimulation from the environment. So for example, when you walk into a room and you smell fish, 20 seconds later, you're not supposed to be continually at the top of your wits going, oh, that's fishy smell, fishy smell, fishy smell. Your brain goes, oh, we smell fish, 20 seconds later, shut that off. Oh, look, you're walking into a room with bright lights, shut that off. Oh, look, you're putting your coat on. It hurts for a moment. It hurts people sometimes to put their coat on. Your brain is supposed to shut off those pain fibers from telling your brain, ow, that hurts. So these are mechanisms that the brain uses to say, that's not important, shut it off. That's not important, shut it off. When someone's looking down at a math problem, they shouldn't be focusing on the sound of the refrigerator. They shouldn't be focusing on their sibling crying in the next room or anything else happening in the next room. They should be able to focus on that problem. But because there's not enough 
stability in the cortex, the cortex can't fire down and shut those things off. A similar mechanism with anxiety, which is your sympathetic nervous system going out of control. So we have two parts to our automatic or autonomic part of our nervous system. One's the sympathetic part and one's the parasympathetic. The sympathetic part of our nervous system is the nervous system that makes us anxious. It increases our blood pressure. It makes our pupils huge. It makes us sweat. It shunts blood to our arms and legs. And when you're about to take a calculus test or about to be interviewed by someone like Alonzo, <laughs> your anxiety oftentimes goes up. Uh-huh. And that's normal. But you should be able to inhibit that and think, you know what? This is not a big deal. I'm taking a test. I know what to do. Alonzo's going to ask me some questions. Hopefully, I know this information well enough to be able to answer him. And you should be able to talk yourself into calming down. Maybe not physically saying, this is not that important. Calm down, calm down. But there are other areas in your brain that are going, going, going. Like when I see someone with huge pupils and I shine light in a medial right pupil and the pupil doesn't respond, that's not normal. But there are ways to get that pupil to respond by finding out what's going on in the brain. Now, particularly for anxiety... Anxiety is the sympathetic nervous system going haywire. And the other part of the nervous system, the parasympathetic part of the nervous system, is the part of the nervous system that says, okay, time to rest and digest. So you've got two vagus nerves coming out of your brainstem, one on the right and one on the left. And that vagus nerve controls all your internal organs. Mm -hmm. It lowers your blood pressure. It turns on your rest and digest. So when you walk in and you look at someone and they have huge pupils, Unless they have good reason to be anxious, they shouldn't really have huge pupils. People should be small when people are more calm. There are a lot of ways to stimulate the autonomic nervous system to get the vagus nerve to turn on and to turn on the parasympathetic nervous system, which is what we want to do. And when that happens, the sympathetic, stressful part of the nervous system gets shut off. One great way to stimulate the parasympathetic one great way to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system uh -huh. is to gargle. Mm. That sounds ridiculously simple, right? Mm -hmm. Gargle. Just gargle. with warm water or something. I always tell people to gargle with pink Himalayan sea salt because oh, okay. if there's anything That's in the, the back of your gargle. throat, it might as well kill, the, kill yeah. the stuff in the back of your throat while you're gargling. For but how long? I tell people 60 seconds. You know, you finish brushing your teeth in the morning, tilt your head back, put some salt in that warm water, and gargle and spit, gargle and spit for about 60 seconds. How many times a day? I have people do it twice a day. Twice a day? At least. People could mm -hmm. do it more often than that. I mean, I was in crisis. I was gargling probably 20 times a day when Dr. Humphreys first told me. <laughs> so, would you say that the uh, vagus nerve, would, would it be fair to say it could be the... 2080 of overcoming anxiety, just learning how to really uh, stimulate the yes. vagus nerve? Learning how to stimulate the vagus nerve is a very powerful thing for people with anxiety. Now, what are other ways to stimulate the vagus nerve other than gargling? You could physically uh, rub your belly. That's mm -hmm. a great way to stimulate your vagus nerve uh -huh. because the vagus fires down to the small intestines and large intestines. We've got about, I don't know, 20 or 26 mm -hmm. feet of intestines down there. And if you physically rub the intestine, that the that vagus, those, those nerve endings in your gut will mm -hmm. fire back up to your brain. Mm -hmm. So that's a great way to do it too. Also, rubbing your carotid artery, rubbing the artery, and the, you'll have to look at a book to do this. Don't do left and right at the same time. We want to make sure your brain keeps getting blood. But you can 
rub your carotid artery that has receptors in it mm-hmm. to turn the sympathetic nervous system off. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to anxiety, one of the popular tactics for anybody who is searching about how to overcome it, usually you end up coming to some type of meditation. Do you have any, uh, what's your take on on medi- the, the, the art idea. of meditation and why, why does it work? <clears throat> it's a great it idea. It's a great idea. Because when you are training your brain to do anything focused like that, you're using the front part of your brain, you're using the frontal cortex. And anytime you use the frontal cortex, it's going to shut down the centers that are causing anxiety and high mm-hmm. blood pressure and stress. That's a great idea. You also have patients who come to you to deal with depression. And now, and I'm sure it's, the, the approach is going to be similar, right? You're going to try to identify a, a, what part of their brain you can a, help enable to, to help them deal with that problem. So I guess just talk about something different that we we already covered with the ADHD part and the anxiety. Could you walk me through maybe the different types of interventions? And by intervention, I mean, like, it could be the... The, the vibration in your feet or the the brain stimulation what are all is there are there too many to to talk about do you think right now or do you think there is only it's a it's a very small list that we can go through and kind of get an idea of what it is exactly that you do in your practice and how do you choose each of those tactics and what are they meant to accomplish that's a good question okay so Oftentimes, I don't have a lot of patients with depression. Okay. I've, I, would, I would say just a few over the last mm-hmm. several years. But they all do have cortical deficits. Mm-hmm. And many of them, believe it or not, are losing their sense of smell. Mm-hmm. So part of the examination that I do in the office is that I check all the cranial nerves. And one of the cranial nerves is checking your ability to smell. So I'll have someone close their eyes and cover their left nostril with their left pointer finger, and I'll open a little bottle of essential oil, say peppermint. This is one thing I see repeated Mm -hmm. in people, not only with depression, but when people say, oh, my parent has dementia, and they're afraid of getting dementia. Because 20 years before people get dementia, they lose a sense of smell. Hmm. What I've noticed with people, because I've treated more people with dementia than people with depression, is if people have completely lost a sense of smell, I've never seen that come back. Mm-hmm. But if people have a very weak sense of smell, that can come back. I've seen it come back. Mm-hmm. So if you cover one nostril and say, okay, 12 inches away, I'll say, Joseph, can you smell anything? No, I don't smell anything. You should be able to smell peppermint oil at 12 inches away, right? That's normal behavior at six inches away. Joseph, do you smell? And they don't know how far away it is because their eyes are closed. That's six inches away. Do you smell anything? Yes, I smell something. Can you identify it? Okay, so the ability to smell something is comes from your left temporal lobe. It's a temporal lobe event. The ability to identify it is a frontal cortical event. So if someone can say, oh, that's peppermint at 12 inches away, I know that most of those pathways are working well. And then I'll go on the left side and say, okay, do you smell this? I'll just open a bottle of cinnamon. Do you smell anything? Oh, that's cinnamon. So it's really interesting to see because people say, oh, I have a great sense of smell. But then they have a great sense of smell on the left side, but maybe they can't tell anything is there on the right side. It's really interesting to see. It's really interesting for patients to see. For the first particular patient, I'll send them home and say, one of your things I want you to do for homework is I want you to do scent therapy. 
I want you to cover the left nostril. If it was weak on the right, cover the left nostril. Take anything you have in your kitchen, cloves, rose oil, vanilla, anything that you like, and close your eyes and think, this is vanilla, this is vanilla, this is vanilla. Train your brain to remember what that looks like. Train it when you do well at two inches away. Take it at six. Have your wife test you. Honey, what do you think this is? Is it vanilla or spearmint or wintergreen or cinnamon? What do you think it is? You should be able to identify all those different things at 12 inches away on both sides of your head. But see, this is a, a thing that I think most practitioners are missing. When someone comes in, they say, oh, I have a poor sense of smell. Do you really? Is it on one side or the other? My blood pressure is high. Is it really? Let's check it on both sides. I've seen people whose blood pressure is 20 points higher on the right than the left. Most medical doctors will say there's a blockage somewhere. The vast majority of the time, there is no blockage. It's a functional deficit because that sympathetic nervous system on the one side is firing so high, but on the other side, it's a lot more normal. So again, these treatments would be asymmetrical. Now, you're, you're talking about the lack of sense of smell on people dealing with depression. So I'm just kind of firing up some things in my head. So it, in a tactical way, in a day-to-day, you're saying that stimulating your sense of smell will help uh, create th those pathways that are blocked. Absolutely. And that causes That are depression. not there. That are lost. So could, would it be fair to say somebody uh, who has depression, they could get maybe into uh, hobbies like cooking or something that r makes you more intentional about being closer to the, your sense of smell because yes. you have to have an idea of does this smell good or right? It's more of a absolutely, absolutely. And also, if there's a weakness on one side more than the other, we would want them to be smelling more on one side. If someone can't hear as well on one side versus the other, or if someone's blood pressure is higher on the right versus the left, or particularly with ADHD and autism, this is almost always is when I shine light in the right medial pupil, there's no response. Mm -hmm. And the left medial pupil, there is a response. That's weird. Mm -hmm. That's not normal. So to be able to do things to stimulate the right cortex, again, the right side only, to stimulate the right cortex only, to get that cortex firing at a higher rate, to get it to fire down, inhibit the things it's supposed to do, stimulate the things it's supposed to do. Got it. Now, going, going back to the... <clears throat> The question about the different types of intervention at this point, you know, doesn't really matter if it's like ADHD, anxiety, because I'm sure you have, you use some of these for the three of them or some just for one. Uh, from a high level category view, what are the different types of interventions that patients go through when they come see you to help them? With whatever they're experiencing and i know for example you mentioned like when you had your journey with the doctor in chicago he gave you like the vibration in the play so i'm just curious to learn about how many of those there are or is, or is the list too vast that we couldn't cover it in like the next three minutes it's a pretty vast list i would say mm -hmm. because once i can determine or someone can determine where the weakness is and remember this is important for all the listeners too Every child with ADHD and every child with autism has a right cortical deficit. So what sort of treatment would be good for that? 
things to stimulate the right cortex. Now, on a global level, now, okay, let's go back to specifics. Mm-hmm. What in the right cortex is deficient? It's going to be different based on your exam. Is it the frontal part of your cortex? Is it the parietal lobe? Is it the midbrain? We call it the mesencephalon. Mm-hmm. Is it the brainstem, the pontomedullary junction? Is it the pontomedullary junction where the vagus nerve comes out? It might not be in a person. It depends on how your brain developed and what the weak areas are in your brain. But on a global level, in terms of what to do for health in general, is stimulate your brain. And I think we do a disservice to our children in school because, you know, in other countries around the world, they focus on art in school and they focus on dancing. They have dance classes in mm-hmm. art. And we're going away from that in the United States of America. And I think it's sad because we're really going towards the track of the kids with the left brain do great. You know, are you great at math and science? Oh, your left yeah. brain must be really strong. You're doing great. And so we pigeonhole these kids to do, you know, focused engineering and mathematics them. Yeah. At, at the expense of their right cortex oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So doing focused things, reading an art book, looking, I, I, I have this woman who's uh, struggling with depression and she's so much better than she was, but she, what else can I do, Dr. Mary? Go to the library, look at a book of pictures that you would never normally look at. Do something that you never really would think, oh, I'm really interested in this. Expand your mind and expand your brain. Do something that you wouldn't normally do. Hmm. Drive home a different way today. <laughs> Buy different food at the supermarket. You know, Eat whole fresh foods. But in terms of brain stimulation, I have a very dominant left cortex. Math and science, I'm in. Mm-hmm. And I started reading books and going to lectures and taking dance classes. I'm a terrible dancer, <laughs> uh-huh. but I'm taking the dance classes to develop that part of my brain to get away from the science of, and math so that I can develop the right part of my cortex to have a more balanced brain. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up on everything we discussed, so it really comes to understanding which part of your brain, whether it is the, the left or the right, is underdeveloped because you've not done things to develop it. Like, for example, me, I just uh, read nonfiction, right? I've right. Never, I never, I would never go grab a book of fiction. And that could be a sign that one side of my brain is underdeveloped because I'm not doing anything to stimulate it, right? Yes. And then after that, after one looks into that, and the best way to find that out is just looking at things that you don't regularly do because, like, I say it's probably a sign that that part is underdeveloped try to self-help yourself by with proper stimulation yes and regarding i want to mention dr robert malillo he's got a great book sorry he's written five books i believe he's got a great book called disconnected kids Mm d-y-s disconnected kids and then he wrote another book after that called reconnected kids and he's the developer of the brain balance achievement center and he's full of great information in his books regarding ADHD specifically. And Alonzo, I want to say, when I first walked into this room, I saw that your face is a little bit weaker on the right. So this is one mm-hmm. thing I look at when people come in the office. I say, mm-hmm. okay, make a big smile for me. Is one mm-hmm. side of the lips lower than the other? Is one side mm-hmm. of the cheek a little lower? Yeah. Or wrinkle your forehead is one side. Of, sometimes people just have a crooked jaw, you know, but mm-hmm. sometimes they really do have a weakness in that part of their face. And that it would be a sign one of the many findings that I would see, they go, oh, you do have a right cortical deficiency there because you don't have as much tone in the right side of your face as the left. But So if if I if I was to put myself into the, hey, I, I am experiencing ADHD symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and depression on a regular basis, 
and I find out that that the right side of my brain maybe is underdeveloped, uh, would being proactive about properly stimulating that side of my brain over the long term help me overcome all of these? It would definitely decrease the probability of you having these things. And I see... Decrease the frequency of them. Got it. And, and the intensity. Decrease the frequency and the intensity of these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I get stressed, do I get anxious? You know, people have certain things that they feel when they're upset or nervous about something. It's usually one of these. It's usually they get angry, they get depressed, they get anxious, they get scared. It's usually one of those four things. So my default is still anxiety, but I hardly ever feel that anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Um, a, one last section, which is uh, a series of rapid fire questions that I ask, <laughs> I ask all my guests. And okay. this, is just, okay. this is just to learn uh, a little bit about how you work. Um, what's your morning routine like? When I wake up first thing in the morning, I go downstairs, I have a big glass of water with some doTERRA drops in it called On Guard in the wintertime. All right. Like Changing things up. <laughs> I put a tablespoon of collagen, liquid collagen in there, and a package of gelatin. Hmm. I love these questions because <laughs> 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 you start discovering a little bit how people implement what they know into their day-to-day lives. Uh, one word that best describes how you work. Focused. All right. A current computer. An iMac. Current mobile device iPhone 7. All right. <laughs> Which I really don't like the idea that doesn't have a headphone jack. <laughs> I'm realizing I can't even, there are certain things I just didn't even think when I bought it that I can't do. Um, apps, softwares, tools, you can't live without. Tools I can't live without? You're not talking about tech tools. Um, most of the time it's tech tools, like in your phone or software, like I would, I would say uh, like email or whatever, but also it could be a real life tool. You never know. I, think I have to say the first thing that popped into my head is a good sharp kitchen knife. All right. There you go. Because I noticed that you also brought something where you're sitting on. Oh, yes. I have a very severe scoliosis. So uh-huh. most of my shoes have a left lift on the bottom of the heel oh, and okay. the whole platform of the shoe. And Yes, I was in a massive car accident when I was seven years old, and oh. I, my left femur is actually half inch shorter than my right. So Alonzo's noticing that I'm sitting on, I call it an ischial, an ischial lift. Uh-huh. Uh, my kids call it the butt pad. But <laughs> I sit, I put it under the Love left it. side of my uh, left it. side of my buttocks so that it levels out my pelvis. <laughs> the next question is, what everyday thing are you better at than everyone else? People have a hard time answering this. What are you good at? You don't have to be better than everyone else. I'm really good at analysis. Analysis. Yeah. I'm really passionate about analyzing. And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll go to the movies with my kids and I'll say, oh my gosh, look at that person's cervical kyphosis. Mom, cut it out. So mm-hmm. it's, it's funny because I go around the world looking at people with chiropractic and neurological eyes. Mm-hmm. And um, my kids think it's really funny, but it makes me a good doctor. What's your workspace setup like? I have one big treatment room and it's very feng shui. I uh-huh. have other per- people tell me that. And I have uh, an examining table and a bench and some nice artwork on the wall. I've got this beautiful print of Michelangelo's creation of Adam. Mm-hmm. And it's too bad we don't have video here, but in that painting, which is at the top of the, um, in um, 
in Rome. It's oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, I know what you're talking about. At the top of the church, which is a kind of like a circle, like an oval. I yes, think people know. The, what it, yeah, people don't know what that was. But my, Michelangelo's painting of the creation of Adam is up there. But if you take a look at that painting, you'll see that God and the angels is sitting in a perfect half section of a human brain. You can see where the cortex oh. is and the cerebellum and the brainstem. And I think Michelangelo was brilliant. He, you know, was a grave digger, and he was the first artist that I my limited understanding is the first artist that actually drew really beautiful muscle tone in people because he actually did a lot of dissection. So it's not surprising that he has a brain, a beautiful, huge brain for everyone to see. And I think that this is what human beings have that even the dolphins don't have, right? A mm -hmm. developed neocortex. We could learn how to speak and language and think about tomorrow and think about mm -hmm. eternity and think about the future. And I think human beings are the only things that can do that. <laughs> uh, what's your best time-saving tactic? My best time-saving tactic is I don't do anything. I don't leave the house in my vehicle without doing multiple things. So when one of my kids says, I need to go get a haircut today. Nope, not unless we're doing something else on the way. So when I drive out of my driveway, I'm making a loop. I'm dropping <laughs> things up at the Goodwill and then I'm going to the grocery store and then I'm doing some yeah. errands and then I'm to get my son a haircut and then I come home. That's so I genius. think that's very efficient. Poking everything into schedule, blocks of time. I have three teenagers. Life is okay. busy. <laughs> <laughs> What's uh, your favorite to-do list manager? It can be an app, but it can also be in the physical world. Like, how do you keep uh, track of all your things to do? With my three children, I have a big whiteboard that I put in the foyer every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, each child has a different color. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> you know, I write the, the initial and I say, you're going to do this today. And this is, you're going to do this today. You're going to do this today. So that's really helpful for me and everybody else. I love my calendar. I have a paper calendar. I like to actually look at it big. Paper calendar. Bigger than my iMac. I like to actually look at it and visualize and mm -hmm. see my writing in it. It's more helpful for me to see my own writing than something in type. Mm-hmm. On a screen. Uh, do you listen to music while you're at work? No, I should, but I don't. Okay. Uh, what are you currently reading? I'm reading an amazing book called Holographic Blood. Mm, by who? Do you know the author? By Biggleson, B-I-G-E-L-S-O-N. He's a medical doctor. What's the latest thing? That you're saying no to? Device time. What is that? Chill, my children and their devices. Device time. Oh, no devices. Well, I'm saying Or no, less, no time. More, less, time, less time with devices, yeah. What about yourself? Not on the specific devices, but just something that you're saying no to most recently. All right, I'm just going to say this. Um, gluten and casein. All right, all right. Gluten is the molecule in wheat and barley it's difficult for the dot body to digest it it's right. difficult for and casein yeah okay and so, uh, what's your sleep routine like i'm a night person uh -huh. so as soon as my kids aren't around i go to reverting to staying up till midnight and one o'clock i don't advocate that though i think everyone should be probably be asleep by 10 or 11 o'clock do you wake up early or what's your But then you usually wake I'm up. usually up at 6.40. I don't want to be up at 6.40, but I'm <laughs> usually right. up at 6.40. Uh, last one. What's uh, something that most people don't know about you? 
Alonzo, I have to say, I'm the kind of person that wears my heart on my shirt sleeve. <laughs> I couldn't imagine anybody saying, well, I didn't know that about you, but I'd have to think about that one a while. Okay. Now, uh, there is one last question uh, for the end of the episode, but before we get to it, uh, where can people find you online or and then learn more about you? DrMaryHarris.com. Okay. D-R and my name. M-E-R-R-Y-H-A-R-R-I-S dot com. Or you could email me, drmaryharris at gmail.com. I've got two assistants right now, Cara and Janice. So one of the Mm -hmm. three of us will get back to. I usually like to call new patients myself if they have Mm -hmm. a question. Nice. Because um, I love love people. Okay, I'll put those in the show notes so people can uh, find them and click on it if they didn't write it down. Uh, Last question. This is the really, really, really the last question. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> and you can take your time. But if today was your last day on earth and everything you've created was all to disappear, you have no private practice, no degrees, nothing, no books, no writings, but you could leave your loved ones and the world behind with three truths about life, what would those be? Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. I would say that would be the first one. Mm -hmm. The second one would be the truth is incontrovertible. Malice may attack it and ignorance may deride it. But in the end, there it is. And there's so many people on the planet like Galileo who had truth to dispel and people wouldn't listen. And the third one? Healing comes from the inside out, not the outside in. And that was my interview with Dr. Mary. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access these episode's notes alongside other resources at bit.ly slash BTS EP021. Again, that's bit.ly, B-I-T, that ly slash bts ep021 finally if you enjoyed listening to this interview the best way to support this podcast is by leaving a review on itunes thank you for tuning in and remember to live a life that moves you 